Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now today's message. Well, hello there, everybody. This is Pastor Joel. I want to welcome you to a special edition of the Covenant Podcast. I am in the studio today with my friends, Vince Vaughn, Steve Cristiano, Mark DeStefanis, and Troy Stangl, who are helping me put this together. Um, Actually, these guys are here with me every single Sunday, uh, helping us get God's Word out to all of you. Uh, But today, rather than use this podcast to come to you from my preaching ministry, uh, I'm just coming to you directly here in the studio. And and there's a reason for that. We're in the middle of a series called Ask Anything Summer, and you guys sent me more questions than I was able to answer in the time that is allotted for us to do that in the month of July. And so we have three special edition podcasts on top of our regular weekly messages that we want to bring to you to try to answer some of these questions. And I'm excited about the two uh, that have come to me today. And so let's go ahead and get started. We have uh, someone writing here asking, what is the third temple in Ezekiel. Now, for those of you who may not even understand the question, there's some context to this. Several weeks ago, while preaching a sermon right here at Covenant, I said, I made the following statement. I said, guys, there's, there is no such thing as a third temple. The third temple is the church of the living God. I'm looking at that third temple. Well, we had a gentleman who's a part of our congregation who wrote and said this, in the book of Ezekiel, the 40th chapter. There is a description of a temple. What's that all about? And so the first thing I want to do is commend this gentleman and any of the rest of you who think like this. Uh, Paul actually spoke to a church in Berea, the book of Acts tells us, and those Bereans searched the scriptures, Luke tells us, so that they could see whether or not Paul, what he told them, whether or not what he told them was true. And um, I, I just think that's a good and a healthy thing. You ought never to accept something as truth simply because your preacher said it, although I, I do value and appreciate your trust very much. But when you come across something like this, not only is there nothing wrong with asking the question, it's a healthy thing to ask that question. And admittedly, That Sunday, since I wasn't primarily talking about Ezekiel, I wasn't really uh, trying to elaborate on that particular point, but this is an important text for discussion, and so I'm glad this brother brought it up, because on the surface, it does seem to say the exact opposite of what your pastor said a few Sundays ago, And, and truthfully, anytime your pastor contradicts the Bible, you should go with the Bible, but I don't think I'm contradicting the Bible, and I'm going to tell you why that is as, as we move through this, this passage in Ezekiel, beginning in Ezekiel chapter 40. It is indeed, as our brother said, a vision of the temple. Uh, Ezekiel receives this vision in Israel. Now, here's the question you want to ask of all prophetic literature, but especially uh, that which has a bit of an apocalyptic flair like Ezekiel does. When I read a vision that God gives a prophet, should I take that literally or should I take that symbolically or figuratively? So the literal understanding would in fact say there is a third literal temple that's going to be built somewhere in Israel sometime in our future. 
The symbolic view, which is obviously the one I hold because I kind of gave my cards away uh, a few Sundays ago, says that that third temple is symbolic of God finally dwelling perfectly with his people in a perfect relationship. Now, why would I say something like that? especially given all of the ornate detail that we find in Ezekiel. And this is, this is a vision, by the way, that's eight chapters long. It begins in chapter 40, verse 1, goes all the way to, uh, through the end of chapter 48. Um, very ornate. All of the measurements are given. It, it certainly reads on the surface uh, like a literal description of a literal temple. Uh, so let me tell you why I think that's probably not the case. The first is that this is a detailed description not only of the temple, but of the sacrificial system. So let me point you to just a few verses here. Chapter 43, verses 18, 19, 21, 22, 26, 27, uh, and, and ongoing, we see this phrase, a sin offering. Uh, in other words, in this future temple, this, this temple that Ezekiel saw, you have people sacrificing like they did in the Old Testament. And it is to, verse 26 actually says, to make atonement for sin. Verse 27, God says, I will accept you because of the atonement that you have made for your sins. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Why wouldn't we just accept that as literal? Well, one reason for that is because of what the New Testament tells us about that old covenant. And so now we're going to jump just briefly from Ezekiel chapter 40 over to Hebrews chapter 8. Now I want you to hear these words from the author of Hebrews. He says, now the point in what we are saying is this, we have such a high priest. And in this context, he's speaking of Jesus, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty of heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. What's he referring to there? All right, well, there's a tent but it's not the one that man erected. It's something he erected. He goes on and says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. And then he keeps going and he says this about that entire sacrificial system that began with the Mosaic law in Leviticus and comes all the way up and is still in full effect at the time of Ezekiel. But the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 8 verse 5 says, these things serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So it's a pattern, it's a copy, it's a shadow. And then he goes on to say in verse seven, if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. He goes on further and he says later on in chapter eight that that old covenant is actually now obsolete and passing away. So the question then is, what do we do with this? All right, you have on the one hand, this description of a temple that really on the surface seems literal, but then you have this description in the New Testament that says the sacrifices in particular are going to be obsolete. The temple in Ezekiel 40 includes sacrifices. Those sacrifices are for the forgiveness of sins. But then in Hebrews 8, we read that there's no need for that sacrificial system and the accompanying forgiveness of sins now that the new covenant is in force. That old covenant is now obsolete. And when I, when I come across a dilemma like this, 
I, I remember the words uh, of an older brother in Christ, uh, a mentor of sorts of mine and a colleague. He's been with Jesus now for a couple of years, re- regrettably died of COVID. His name was Dr. Tom Fillinger. And Tom Fillinger used to always tell me this, when you come across what you think is an apparent contradiction in the text, the first thing you need to remember is that God is not schizophrenic and therefore there really is no contradiction. If there's a contradiction, it's in your head, not in the text. And that your responsibility under the illumination of the Holy Spirit is to push through that apparent contradiction and find the truth that God is seeking to communicate to us through all of Scripture. So let me give you my best shot at what I think is going on in Ezekiel with that explanation. I think the best explanation of Ezekiel 40 is that Ezekiel is speaking truth about a future that he does not fully comprehend, okay? So he's speaking truth, but it's about a future that that even he doesn't understand. And guys, we've seen this before in the text of scripture, we've seen it in other prophets where someone will say something and they're not even quite sure what they are saying. And then we get to the gospels and we discover, you know what, the, the, the apostles, the apostolic witness actually say something very different than what the prophet thought that he was saying. Not only is this true between the apostles and the prophets, but we actually even see this in Ezekiel himself. Uh, For example, if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, there's a vision of God there, and you start seeing all this vague kind of language for trying to describe what he's seeing, but somehow uh, grasping for the language and, and in some cases being unable to find that language. You'll see things like, I saw what was the form of the appearance of something like a manifestation. So Ezekiel's done this before uh, from the very first chapter of his prophecy where he's just honest with his readers and said, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what I'm seeing, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with the limitations of my human language, I'm trying to explain it as best as I can. So my best shot at this is to tell you that the temple he describes in chapters 40 through 48 are his best understanding of a vision he receives. And of course, in the time that he lived, we, uh, the Israelites did have a temple. The old covenant was still in effect. And so he's speaking the language of the people that he's ministering to, but I don't even think he realizes the New Testament implications of what he's saying. Now, why would I say that? Because, well, when we get to Ephesians chapter four, we see another picture of another temple beginning in verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. The metaphor again, like in Ezekiel is construction. And he says to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, the mature manhood, the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the winds, carried about by every wind of doctrine. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is head into Christ, from whom the whole body, now notice this language again, construction language, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Where's the temple? I would still contend that when I get up on Sunday morning and I look at the people that God has given me who call me pastor, that I'm looking at that third temple. 
And that that third temple, once construction is complete, using New Testament language, when all the elect of God are brought in, Jesus will return for his bride. And he will once again appear at a temple. But this time it won't be uh, the one that Haggai and Zechariah encourage God's people to build. It will be you. It will be me. And by the way, in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16, we read this with even more clarity. Do you not know that you, and this is the plural you in the Greek text, he's speaking to the whole church, you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you. Um, We are the temple of God. Now, some of you may be listening to this. You may go back into the text And you may say, well, you know what, Pastor Joel, that's a pretty good argument. I'm still not sure I agree. Well, you know what? This is not one of those essentials that we have to agree on in order to be in church together and serve Jesus together. And this is one of those churches where you can disagree with your pastor. But since the question was asked, I thought I would answer it. And uh, I certainly hope it's been helpful to you uh, to hear the the diversity of opinion uh, around a pretty important text. And I want to thank this brother again uh, for the question. Okay, so let's deal with this second question now. And uh, this one came from actually several of you uh, asked this question in different ways. What is the role of women in the body of Christ? And I am in the studio live right now. It's me and four other guys, and they're all looking at me right now like I do not want a piece of this. And so uh, it it is, it can be a touchy subject, um, and it's made more so by something recently that's happened since I received this question. The Southern Baptist Convention, the nation's largest Protestant denomination, uh, just voted basically to kick out two churches who had women in pastoral roles. And one of those churches you may have heard of before, the Saddleback Valley Community Church, uh, has been was pastored for 43 years until he retired last year uh, by Dr. Rick Warren, author of The Purpose Driven Life. Um, so this has made headlines and not in a good way, um, but, but are they doing the right thing? That's really the question. And so what I want to talk to you about here is are two opinions of two groups of people who are Bible-believing people, they're Jesus-loving people, and so one, one group is not just a bunch of rabid liberal feminists. The other group is not necessarily a bunch of misogynists that hate women. And, and so uh, we, we're going we're gonna to talk about this uh, as best we can. And the two positions are, uh, on the one hand, egalitarianism egalitarianism, and I'm sorry that these, there's so many syllables in these words, but I promise you I didn't invent them. Egalitarianism teaches that men and women, both created in the image of God, are equal both in essence and in function. So what that means, if, if you're egalitarian, you're saying, well, there's nothing that a man can do that a woman in scripture and in the church would be prohibited to do. Okay, so egalitarianism would say, if you ask an egalitarian, can a woman be a pastor? Can a woman preach? Can a woman lead in any way? They would say a woman can do absolutely anything that a, an equally scripturally qualified God-called man can do. All right, so that's egalitarianism. On the other side of this discussion and debate is complementarianism. Complementarianism says Men and women are both created in the image of God. They are equal in essence, but they are distinct in their function. And so complementarians would say there are limits within the body of Christ uh, to what scripture would allow a woman to do. Now, 
among complementarians, there's a lot of variety of opinion about exactly what those limits are. And, and so I've been asked this question, what does the Bible teach about this? Uh, well, it really depends on who you are. And so I want to be honest about that. And I also want to be honest about what covenant believes, what our, our practice has been, uh, the position of our elders with regard to this issue, just so you know where we're coming from. But the first thing I want to say right out of the gate is this. This is what we call a secondary issue. Uh, now, what do I mean by that? I mean that nobody's going to go to hell for believing the wrong thing. That, that's what I believe. Uh, and that, and that's, that scripture would not teach that this is essential for salvation. And so you, you're going to have complementarians on one side of this, egalitarians on the other side of this. Uh, and you've got people in both groups who believe God's word. They're trying to be as faithful as they can to it. Uh, but they see this in different ways. And so if there's somebody out there that disagrees with me on this issue, it's not an unserious issue because it does affect who's going to lead and who's allowed to lead in your church. Uh, but it's also not an issue that should make someone who disagrees with me my enemy. So I, I want to be very, very clear about that. That said, covenant is, in fact, a complementarian congregation. Um, however, there are a lot of complementarians that would not be very happy with us in the way that we apply that around here. Uh, now, why is that? Uh, because there are going to be some people, like our egalitarian brothers and sisters, who will say, no, 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 you go too far in your limiting of what women can do at covenant. And, and then there are going to be complementarians to the right of us that are going to go, well, we don't think you go far enough. And for those of you that have been around the covenant family for a while, you know women preach and teach here, including on occasion taking my place in the pulpit. Women serve as deacons. Uh, one of our senior staff who manages a swath of our other staff is a woman. Uh, are we allowing something to happen in all those cases that scripture forbids? Well, that, that's a legitimate question. Uh, and then for some of you, you go, well, why in the world would scripture forbid such a thing? Uh, so let me see if I can explain succinctly uh, what the scriptures teach and, and why we are where we are uh, as the covenant family. So let's start with the hot button text. And that's found in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. And it says this, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over the man. And then it goes on to, to list why. So here are the two bookends of this that I think we have to start out with. The first four words, I do not permit. I think all of us would agree, if we believe scripture is God's word, that when God's word utters a phrase like, I do not permit, whatever it is that's on the other side of that, we want to make sure we never, ever do. Uh, and that's especially true for this particular command because on the other bookend of it is Paul's rationale for that. He says, for man was created first and then the woman was created. And, and then he goes on to describe the created order, the fall. And, and so in, in some places in scripture, like for example, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul says women should be silent in the church, uh, we would not apply that today. But the reason is because that's what's called a culturally bound text. If you read 1 Corinthians, you realize he's, he's talking about a particular group of women at a particular place and time. Uh, that, that's not a universally applied command. 
But 1 Timothy 2 is different because Paul doesn't ground that in the culture of the day or what's going on in Ephesus when he's writing to this pastor Timothy. Uh, It actually is grounded in the created order. So because of uh, what has been established in the created order, Paul says on the front end of this sentence, I do not permit. Now, what is that thing that he does not permit? He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over the man. You're like, well, goodness, that sounds pretty clear cut, Joel. Maybe we should just call it a day. Not so fast. And and here's the reason why. When you look at the rest both of, of both of our Testaments, really, but especially the New Testament, here's what you find. You go to 1 Corinthians 11, and you see Paul saying, when a woman prays or prophesies in the church, she's to have her head covered. Now, I'm not getting into head coverings. That's a whole other ball of wax. That was a culturally bound thing. But basically, Paul is allowing for a woman to pray publicly in the church and prophesy. That's just another word for preach. And so women are proclaiming God's word in the church in 1 Corinthians 11. We have other examples of this in in the book of Acts. Priscilla, uh, a colleague of Paul, along with her husband Aquila, they are discipling a young preacher named Apollos. That's not the only example we have of a woman uh, exercising influence, discipleship influence, teaching influence, over a man. Phoebe is mentioned in Romans 16 as the carrier of the letter to Rome. So we're talking about a deacon in the church at, at Centrea who is given this letter that Paul just wrote called that you and I today call the, the letter to the Romans. And she's not just going to deliver it in all likelihood. She was the first person to ever read that letter out, out loud to the first congregation to ever hear it out loud. Junea, a close associate among the apostles, both Joel in the Old Testament and Acts, uh, undergirding and and emphasizing Joel in Acts chapter 2. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So what do we do with this? Well, this goes back to my friend Tom Fillinger's statement. Remember, God is not schizophrenic. If it seems to be an apparent contradiction that the problem is in our ability to comprehend what God is saying, we need to ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. We need to go deeper. Whatever Paul is prohibiting here, he's obviously not prohibiting things that in other places he's endorsing, right? So exactly what is it that he's prohibiting? And then that brings us back to verse 12. And there are two things here, teaching and having authority. Now, there's a couple of things that are kind of complicated here about the Greek grammar that I'm going to hope to, to clarify for you. Uh, in your English Bibles, you will see this. I do not permit a woman to teach nor to have authority over the man. And a lot of folks have read that by English standards and said that's a list of two things that women are not allowed to do. They're not allowed to teach and they're not allowed to have authority. However, That conjunction, by Greek standards, isn't always there merely for you to make a list. You don't do this and don't do this and don't do that. Typically, that conjunction, by Greek standards, is intended to tie two things together as a unit. So if we were going to translate the Greek standard into English standard text, probably more accurately, it would be translated this way. I do not permit a woman to teach with unappropriate or inappropriate authority over the man. Okay, so teach is, well, that just means what it says, to teach. But then you've got this word to have authority, and this is the only time this word is ever used in the New Testament, 
which means we got to go outside the New Testament to determine what it means. Hopefully you're still following with me, okay? So authentain is the verb, and it means the best meaning that we can ascribe to it in English is to usurp or to assume for yourself authority that is not inherently yours. So from the grammar, 1 Timothy 2.12, I think this is what we could deduce that Paul is saying. I do not permit a woman to usurp authority she does not inherently possess in order to teach men. Well, what does that mean? I think in order to determine that meaning, you go to the next chapter and you begin to read where Paul is describing the office and the functions and the character qualifications of the office of elder, pastor, overseer. And a covenant, we believe all three of those are synonymous. Those, are, those words are used interchangeably in 1 Peter 5. So, so when, we, when we go to the text, that's what we believe. So, so how do we apply all of that here at covenant? Pretty, pretty simply, actually. We say that the office of pastor, elder, overseer is an office that we believe, according to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, is to be limited to scripturally qualified men, because it is patterned after the pattern of creation. This is something grounded in the very created order. God takes that seriously, and so he wants us uh, to reflect and to emulate that pattern. Okay, so the office of pastor, elder, overseer, here at Covenant, there's eight of us. All of us are guys, okay? However, that does not mean that a woman cannot do, and in fact should do, anything that God has gifted her to do under proper authority. Okay. So this is, hopefully this will explain. You may not agree, but at least you'll understand why sometimes at covenant we say, okay, this is an office reserved for men, but then there's on occasion, there's a woman preaching. Why is that? Uh, what we're trying to do as best we can is to be obedient to all of scripture. Again, all scripture is inspired of God and is profitable. And so we don't want to divide it up into pieces. We don't want to pick and choose what we're going to believe and what we're not going to believe. And we don't want to use simplistic arguments by ignoring certain places in scripture. Uh, egalitarianism is not something we can do because we do, we do believe that in 1 Timothy 2, Paul is prohibiting something. And I just described for you what I think he is prohibiting. Um, but we also don't want to just limit women for fear that they might do something that we think they're not supposed to do, if for no other reason than the rest of the New Testament records for us. All manner of things that our sisters in Christ did operating within their gifts, which is why women at Covenant serve as deacons, and women preach, and women teach, and women manage staff, and women sometimes even lead me when I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing, and they point me in the right direction and help me to get where I'm going. I am so thankful for our sisters in Christ. Um, and I'm so glad that this question was asked. If you uh, have other questions about this, certainly you can always uh, write in. Uh, but that's going to do it for Special Edition uh, Volume 1. Uh, hope you've enjoyed this. I do want to thank my partners in crime up here, Vince Vaughn, Mark DeStefanis, Troy Stangle, Steve Cristiano, helping me put these special editions together. By the way, these guys are also up here in the studio every Sunday. If you watch from home, they're making sure that you're having a great experience. When you see them on campus, thank them for what they're doing, would you? And may the Lord bless you. I'll see you next time. Hi everybody, Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. 
I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at nine o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already receive from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.